Guru Nation, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. It really means a lot to me. If you haven't subscribed, please do so. Thank you so much. Leave a review. I wanted to also thank my sponsors who make this show possible. The first one is Viva Sight Vault. Absolutely free. By the way, links to all of this stuff is in the show notes. Viva Sight Vault. If you are a site and you wanted to dip your toe into going digital and for e-reg and to start messing around with e-signatures, this is the way to go. They are the biggest name in our industry from a tech vendor standpoint. They're site-centric. They made this easy for us, guys and gals. And it's absolutely free. Sites.viva.com. Check it out. I use it. I also use Versatrail, which is my next sponsor. Versatrail has made my life so easy as a coordinator from an organization standpoint. Links to all these portals are in one easy place. You can literally link to anything you can think of, whether it's a protocol or it's the latest informed consent form or it's the IRT or it's the vendor to upload this or the other vendor to upload that. It's all there in one easy place. Not to mention, they do a lot on the feasibility side, which makes feasibility surveys a breeze. Check it out. This is a company that is going places. Versatrail. My next sponsor is Creo. I've been using Creo for years. They are eSource and eReg and CTMS and patient database and eConsent and so many more other things. And while they are not free, I definitely think it is worth the price for what you are getting. It has streamlined my research studies and my site, and I got all my coordinators trained on it, and I could not picture running my site without Creo. So check it out. Link in the show note. Finally, Inato, a free service for business development. Go figure. Link in the show note. It makes figuring out what studies you want easier. It makes figuring out what you're going to get if you accept a study super simple. And it really streamlines the process for knowing what's out there on the market. You can use it for as many investigators as you have. And again, it's absolutely free in Nato. Also in the show notes are links to the businesses I own, specifically DSCS, where we help sites get studies, do their contracts, help you with surveys, anything else you can think of, a shoulder to cry on, low monthly fee. And then we have the CRA, CRC Academies. And everything. Guru Nation, thank you so much for watching. Make sure you like, subscribe, comment, share if you're listening. Same thing. Give us like a good rating, right? Like five star if you prefer, but four, we'll take four with you. Just if you're going to do lower than four, just forget about the rating thing. Uh, so we got Brian Cully, CEO, Lineage Cell Therapeutics. Okay. We've actually had him on before, we've had him on multiple channels. Uh, he's semi-local to me. I'm a SoCal native, so it's a San Diego biotech. Brian's been a CEO of multiple biotech companies over the last few decades or so. He's very knowledgeable. He stayed at the small biotech level. We're going to get into his career. How does one even do this? Like, 
how do you even dream of becoming a biotech CEO? And is it a dream, Brian, or is it a nightmare at times? <laughs> Fair enough. It's great to be back and, and, and talking with you today, Dan. Yes. Yeah, so we're going to get into all this stuff. We're also going to get into like the challenges of running a small sponsor and a small biotech. Um, sometimes, you know, there's there's been and the common theme I've had on this show with with people like yourself, Brian, other biotech execs, small biotech execs, they don't often get the respect or the attention of the vendors in the space um, until they reach a point where the vendors think you're important enough, right? Or for them to even give you attention and who's to blame them. They're the ones servicing big pharma. Like that's their priority. So you guys have plenty of headwinds going against you. The market right now is terrible for biotechs. It's been that way. What for the last year, maybe a little longer, like year and a half. I'm I'm, going to call it 30 months. It's like two and a half years, three years. Yeah. 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 What's that like for you? Like, is that worth, that can't be fun. Is that worth having this career still? Oh, absolutely. Because the, 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 no matter whether the economy or your sector is doing well or poorly, many of us, maybe not everybody, but many of us are motivated by the fundamental work we do, right? We're trying to make new medicines and help people. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the question about, you know, what's it like? It sucks, right? It's much better when capital is flowing and share prices are up like that, you know, that's way better than this. There are, you know, upsides, right? You know, you know, if you're, if you're successful in a bad environment, it's kind of a good look for you, but um, generally, you know, it, it, it makes work more difficult, but it doesn't make your work any less important. So it's easy to continue to be motivated even in a historic bear market that we haven't seen the likes of in, in decades. So, given enough time, the good outweighs the bad. Uh, oh you. yeah, yeah, yeah. Even the failures. You, you know, you do something, it doesn't work, and and maybe uh, like I got an email a couple of days ago. Uh, an investment banker said there have been forty biotech bankruptcies already this year. All right, wow. you know, nobody wants to be among them. But if you are, and it's because your product didn't work, you know, you're you're still generating important information about what isn't successful so you know even the failures in this space i think can enrich the space in a way that if you're you know if your campaign for you know different shape cereal flakes doesn't increase sales you know it's like all right whatever but even when you fail you're leaving something behind because it's data do we're gonna get to your career but do you think macroeconomic factors like interest rates maybe that's the most simple one Rising interest rates, do they have like a, a real effect on biotechs? Like does very, it impact you guys? Yeah, very real effect because the the amount of money that flows around sectors in a in a general way vastly exceeds the amount of money that flows around in a biotech specific way. So we know that biotech is capital intensive, right? Drilling oil wells, capital intensive, right? This is high risk, high return. And in an environment with high interest rates, 
that's not where you want to put your money, right? You can you can make 5% sitting in a bank account right now. So it's really hard to invest in high-risk opportunities right now because it's not a macro environment that's supportive of that. You have really low interest rates and you know you get a little bit of unemployment you know things things actually look a little bit different for sectors like ours um and so yeah it's it's tough and it's been going going badly for a while but you know it it turns and that, and that's you can you can always you know resort to that eventually there'll be you know the punch bowl will come back into the party and things will go well and you know you you got to be able to adjust and understand i think is really critical you can't just head down and be like i'm developing therapy you have to be aware of what's happening in the macro world because at the end of the day you can only do what you can fund and if you can't get the capital to do your work right you got to pay attention to the macro for sure it's the capital and then it's the human resources, right? Like you've also got to compete there for the the talent. Once you get the funding situated, now you got to go find the people. Yeah, I think in the extremes, you find that that becomes more important, right? So if, um, if you have a real go-go year and there's a lot of IPOs, you're going to, you're going to see people flowing into startups and, you know, going after that capital. I'm thinking more executives. Mm-hmm. Um, and when things are really bad, right, those people are out looking for, for work and, you know, the talent pool is a little richer. You know, you can find people with extraordinary skill and experience that maybe wouldn't have been available otherwise. And and these individuals also think about their own equity positions, right? They're they're trying to develop drugs, but they're also trying to be, you know, financially comfortable or maybe much more than just comfortable themselves. So if they're working somewhere that it was a $40 stock and now it's a $4 stock, you know, and they're looking at that and going, wow, I'm not going to make equity here. Professionally, they might say, hey, I can work on that lung cancer project down the road and go get, you know, start over and try again. And, and because we're in a, a business that it's really hard to predict the winners, you know, I don't know how risky it is to kind of leave one job and go to another, provided that you can feel comfortable that your chances of success are relatively comparable. So, yeah, there's subtle stuff that affect people on an individual level that does feed into placement and the positions that are that are filled and the quality of the talent pool at, at any given time. Hmm. Do you find that it's the scientists that stick around longer and don't worry so much about stocks or? That's that's fantastic. Um, never thought about it before. My knee-jerk reaction is totally uninformed based on nothing. <laughs> is yes. yes. I I, I do think there's a little bit more loyalty because you know, if you're trained in the lab, um, I, I was, and and you spend your time reading publications and you're in the weekend growing cells or whatever, and you know, you're not learning how to really critically read uh, financial reports. So, you know, you just, you might tend to just kind of roll with the punches. And so you just, you know, you're working on your your science, you're working on your next publication, you might not be thinking so much about, you know, how, how your company's financial situation is. So I think that there could be some, let's call it accidental loyalty, on the uh, R and D side, romantic loyalty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's and it's great, right? It's you know you you want people who are excited about the company. Um, are you you know it's not it's not like the the people who work in accounting are the first people to leave a business that's failing. Um, at least I haven't I haven't seen that, but I think that um, I, I I do think my my hunch is that you do find more loyalty, but it's 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 loyalty out of 
you know, faith or, you know, ignorance or lack of experience. And, and, but the, those, you know, the experience, uh, you know, it's picked up on the bench, right? Yeah. These, are, these are individuals who know a tremendous amount about really technical things that the accountants, you know, these are words that they can't even pronounce sometimes. So, you know, you have your own area of influence and, and your stickiness in an organization can be influenced by whether you're familiar and you think it's a risky place to remain or not. But risk is opportunity. You know, I've, I've had people who've left organizations that I was working at because things got bad. And when things turned around, you know, who gets the rewards? The people who stayed, the people who stuck through it are rewarded for doing so, not just by the stability, but, you know, there are equity rewards from making it through the tough times. There are financial rewards that go along with that, as well as the, the you know, the, the, the great feeling that you have of making it through with a team, you know, to the outside of the tunnel. So, uh, so I've, you know, I've seen it, I've had friends leave and I've had, you know, strangers show up and sometimes people stick around. You just never know what's going to happen out there. A lot of factors go into it. Very personal decisions. Yes. That, so what kind of, like what categories for those not so familiar with biotechs and I'm going to reference this book actually, when we get into your career part, I don't know if you read this yet from, from breakthrough to blockbuster, the business of biotech. Um, this is like a great intro for anyone that wanting to learn more about this. I learned about the tech transfer offices. I didn't realize how important they are to the biotech industry. Like we're going to get into your career. I don't know much about it. I'm guessing it had something to do with a tech transfer office somewhere. Yeah, right? absolutely. Oh. <laughs> I worked at, uh, I worked at one and it was great. It was really valuable. I learned a lot in that, in that time. We're going to get back to that, but from a CEO now, like there's, there's a, there's like two things I want to ask you. Number one, we mentioned scientists at the stage that lineage is at right now. What kind of employees are you seeking? Like there's, there's different categories, right? There's scientists. Do you have marketing people yet? Or like biz dev, like, can you give me like just some categories of where people might be able to fit in career wise at one of these places? Yeah. Um, and I hope I don't leave anybody out. Um, you know, on, on the, on the, uh, R and D side, obviously you've got, um, and I'm going to be general and maybe not super specific to lineage, but you know, you tend to have your biological scientists, you have your chemical scientists, you may have device people, regulatory quality, right? These are, these are big functions on the R and D side on the GNA general administrative. Um, you know, what we come sometimes think of as a business side of the house, that's where you're going to find your finance and accounting, um, you know, business development, you know, marketing and sales. We don't have products for sales, uh, excuse me, for sale. So I don't have a, a commercial team, but, um, you know, your medical scientific liaisons, uh, all of that, um, you know, the clinical tends to live on, on R&D. So these are big sort of corporate functions and the size and the activity of those functions is going to vary company to company. So for example, I've got a really large manufacturing team because it's core to our technology. We manufacture specific kinds of cells. So I need a pretty, you know, pretty robust cell therapy uh, R&D team, but I don't have any synthetic organic chemists because we're not tweaking molecules and, you know, using the building blocks of, of, of science. So each company is going to have its own framework 
And sometimes some of these functions have slightly loose definitions, right? Business development is kind of a bridge between the two sides of the organization. Uh, that's why I came up that way in my career. I wanted to operate on both sides. Um, and it, it varies. You know, some people really look at their business development folks as, as deal makers. Um, others look at the market research and competitive intelligence landscape and have it live in business development. And that's sort of a different function than just getting deals done. So there are a million variations on, on the theme, but I, I probably captured most of the big uh, chunky. I guess I left out legal. Sorry, lawyers out there. But <laughs> <laughs> Who needs more lawyers? Uh MSL is interesting because you don't have, like you said, you don't have a product that you're selling. Uh, what what do the MSLs do at a stage like like your companies? Oh, we we don't, but you know there 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 could be companies oh, that are okay, smaller okay. like us that would have a, an MSL component to their business. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. I think that's very helpful. Like that might be this book in like uh, three yeah. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll tell you where to send royalties. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so your career, okay. You went to Boston College, you went to UC Santa Barbara for your master's, you got an MBA from Cornell. How do you, when did you know, like, hey, I mean, your master's was molecular biology. Like, when did you know you want to do biotech stuff, or did you? Uh, let's see, when? So the the abbreviated journey is at Boston College, I learned very quickly that I wasn't going to be a doctor. And wow. I, I, you know, I kind of went into research because it's, it's cool, right? It's I the think, next best thing. That's, <laughs> I think the biological yeah. sciences are awesome, right? Yep. You know, I, I still, I still have a nerd badge, you know, I like, I like science. It's really interesting. Um, so, so I was doing research and, um, you know, I, I wasn't great at it. I was fine. Right. It was average. Um, and I was thinking about what to do. And so I graduated from Boston College. I went to work at the Scripps Research Institute here in San Diego. And I was, you know, I was running gels and I was a little bit of a gene jockey and, you know, a, a senior guy, a PI in that lab said, hey, you know, I don't want to see you here 20 years from now, you know, ordering reagents. You know, you need to go get a PhD and, you know, go build a real career. And I said, oh, thanks. Thanks, Sandy. I appreciate the advice. And so I went up to, to Santa Barbara. And it was at Santa Barbara that I, I essentially changed my mind. Um, and it, it partly because the the career opportunities, it was a really tough time for PhDs. Everybody was spending six, seven years to get their PhD, three, four years for postdoc. And then you're a soft money assistant professor at some university you'd never heard of before in the middle of the country. And I thought, oh my gosh, that that's not how I that's not how I saw myself, right? I thought it was gonna be different. And so I started doing just, I started doing research, right? I was a researcher, so I did research. I did research on the industry and I asked questions like the one you just asked me, what else could I do? And I learned a few things and I talked to mentors and I did informational interviews and I read everything I could get my hands on. And I heard about this thing called a gold collar worker, which instead of a blue collar worker or a white collar worker was someone who bridged science and business. That was, they were so, so going to be so valuable wow. in the future. It was, it was, I remember some of the scientist magazine or genetic engineering news, something like that. I think it's still wow. around. 
And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. I'd like to do that. Gold and so I tried collar. to figure I've never out. never heard of that. Yeah, it was pretty good, right? Wow. I think it was like, I mean, we're talking, this is like 96, right? Okay. 1996. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, I talked to some people and and one of them was the the head of business development at a company called Neurocrin. Mm-hmm. And um, I had already quit my PhD program and I worked at Neurocrin in the lab. So I was doing industry, you know, drug discovery, screening molecules, trying to disrupt these H- SH2 domains. And it was really fun. But this guy who's, I think he's the CEO at Neurocrin still now, he wasn't at the time, but he said, oh, you might want to consider tech transfer. So to bring it back to tech transfer, he told you this. He right? was the one, right? The CEO said, go work for pharma, carry a bag, detail a drug, learn how to sell, which is pretty good advice but Wait, it didn't so really... he gave this guy from neurocrine and by the way i know him we've done those tardive dyskinesia studies i've like for decades <laughs> okay. i've followed neurocrine we've worked with okay him. okay I, so I the, know who it is <laughs> the, for, so the former ceo the, i'll say the former ceo was a, a genentech pharma guy and he said you should go be a rep for pharma which is pretty good advice right but kevin wow. kevin who was not ceo at the time said I think you should go to tech transfer. And so I looked into that and it took me a year to get a job in tech transfer. And uh, it ended up being at UC San Diego. You know, I was a, I was a pest. I kept knocking on the door, you know, got a job, got a job, got a job. Finally, they had something for me. And I got in there and I started, that was, that was me getting out of the lab was I, I left Neurocrine as a bench scientist and I became a you know, uh, an early, you know, marketing analyst or something, I forget the title, right? Uh, in tech transfer. And that's where I learned about grants and contracts and confidentiality agreements and all of the provisions that go into license agreements. And I got to see inventions make their way out into industry, uh, either licensed by larger companies or or as the basis to start a found up, uh, you know, found a startup company and things like that. And I was like, oh, this is great. Like this is this is home. Like I did that for a little while, and then eventually that led to business development, which is a normal progression, right? From tech transfer into business development, and business development led to being CEO, which again is not that unusual. So there was a trajectory that was set in the mid '90s, which took about I'd say four years to actually implement. But it worked out really well. I was super happy about how my career has gone. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> this <laughs> two-minute summary, there's so there's like hour-long podcasts in every step there. Uh, <laughs> so you're doing bench research at Neurocrine. Yeah. And, like, was the CEO accessible, or do you, did he notice you, or you made it a point to? talk to him or like how did great, that work you know great company there were only 85 people there this is like a couple of years after their ipo and mm-hmm. so it wasn't a big company it was the same company same size company as i run right now mm-hmm. so um so yeah gary gary lyons he he was he was around you know you could chat with him um and if you wanted to you know if, if formally if you wanted to go in and sit down and be like hey i'm looking for some career advice I think he was the kind of guy that that would it would give you that time. But yeah, I was a research assistant one. I was the you know uh, I was slightly above the you know the guy running the autoclave. Um, but I you know I, I moved up over a few years. I you know I got some experience. I talked to people that were in business development as as Kevin Gorman was, and there were other people in uh, in the business development team. And I actually was given the opportunity by that company to spend ten percent of my time helping business development, which basically meant getting online, you know, Googling stuff, looking for some numbers, sourcing some information. It was nice, right? It was a really nice investment in me as an individual and my professional interest to be able to 
throw a fraction of my time into the business development team and, and, and what they offer. And I've tried to continue that. You know, I try to give people opportunities where I work and I look for talent more than necessarily experience. And, um, and I think it's, you know, served me well and it's allowed me to invest in others. Yeah. I like that strategy. Like, so the CEO basically encouraged you to, to develop your career, even if it meant leaving neurocrine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I, I, I once some somebody one time did say to me, um, employ, and I think I might have heard this at Neurocrin. If, if employees leave for for new opportunities and you 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 couldn't offer them something, that's success. You know, it, it's not necessarily successful for someone to stay with your company for twenty years. It might be successful if you really help them become successful elsewhere if you can't give them what what they need you know whether because it's a function or they can't get capped out or whatever and i always thought that was really interesting and and when i have had people come to my office and say hey brian i i'm i'm going to resign and i'm going to go take this other opportunity provided that we had a conversation somewhere along the line and, and i'm not like shocked and disappointed I think it's fantastic. I'm always genuinely happy for them that they found something that's going to be fulfilling. Often it pays more and things like that. That's, that's great, you know? And, um, so yeah, yeah, that's, that's just, that's just good management of an organization. It sets a tone and a feel in an organization. You can't be possessive of your employees. Right, you want to develop right. them and help them get better, but they might leave you. That's all right. Research sites are in the same situation and there's owners that, basically share that strategy and others that don't they're possessive i always tend to lean towards how you are hey you know what if you want to go start your own site you want to work for someone i'll help you do that just be honest with me up front and i'll tell you like my honest opinion how long i think you need to stay here in order to achieve those goals and yeah and have a a lower chance of, of failure um, and they and can come back right i mean i've had back, people yeah. 5 years 10 years i have it's one of the most rewarding things that can happen is someone saying i really would like to work with you again i mean you know there's wow. no better compliment i think as a, as a manager than someone saying i you know let me know if you ever have an opportunity i want to work with you that's great do you think these these are like more i don't know like soft skills right that a manager has there's hard skills do you think wall street appreciates this kind of stuff <laughs> <laughs> The short answer, no, right? <laughs> Wall Street is more like scorecard. Um, yeah. But I, I do think, you know, I hear the conversations about, you know, people say, oh, you know, I, I, I think the CEO is, is, you know, has a good team around him or her. You know, I think that the, you know, there's unity in the boardroom or whatever. Like, I, you know, these things do get talked about, but, um, but they're very difficult to measure. And so I, I used to think about my career and my my profession as as bringing together science and business mm -hmm. but i have more recently expanded that to include the people and the operations these now i feel like there are four things that that are the big chunky categories yeah you have to understand and know the science yeah you have to know and understand the business uh, raise the capital all that the people are really important and you get better at it over time, trying to get the most from the people and understanding that each each person, just like each site in a trial is unique, they got their unique problems and their unique advantages. Same with the, the people that work at every level in the organization. And then operations. And I, and I think that operations has become something that I've, I've increasingly had to kind of set aside as its own separate category and, and meaning like, really the nuts and bolts of of how you how you 
implement your strategy rather than just setting your strategy. Maybe strategy should be a fifth category in there, but right, I think right. people take that for for granted that they I think people think that it's easy. I don't know. I tend to disagree a little bit. Maybe strategy is like interwoven through all four of those. Like it just circulates. Yeah, um, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Do you have like they're all do you think all four of these are equally important or one should be favored more than the other? situationally or you know they do different things um you know clearly you have to get the science right but it's super hard to know right you look at a molecule is it going to work in the clinic i I don't know like the best in the business are right one or two times out of ten so 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 that's different and on the business side i i often say you can only do what you can fund so it 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 might be a great idea, but if you can't raise the capital for it, you know, I've, I've seen this before. People have got brilliant ideas about phase three study designs and everything. Great. If there's no money to run it, you know, we're not, you know, we're not going to do it like full stop. So the money side is, is kind of different ops, you know, ops kind of tolerate ops is about optimization in my mind. Right. So you can, you can have a poorly operating company, that's inefficient, but if you raise enough money, you know, you eventually get to where you need to get to. It's just not very efficient. So ops is really about trying to get better return through your value creation journey. And then the people, I don't know. I mean, some people thrive in a, in a negative environment. Some people like, you know, conflict and they, they feel that it, that it brings out the best. That's not my style. I can't wear that hat credibly. I can't, I can't yell at people for failure. It's just not, it's just not my style. Right. And so, you know, everyone's got their own kind of environment, but what I've been really happy about is that almost universally in my career, I've built organizations where people get along and and I think that helps them, you know, enjoy their work and and do more work and be more productive because they're in an environment where they're paying attention to the objective and their responsibility on the team rather than going out there and thinking, "Oh, you know, maybe I should work on my resume this weekend." So the tech transfer office, like when I was reading this book, which I re- I do recommend every I don't get anything out of it. You guys want to watch learn more read this book you probably don't need it brian but i learned about tech transfer offices like the concept of that from here so i always like i've been in this industry since 05 so i always understood okay well universities they have a role like they're not very efficient research sites so i didn't understand like we could run circles around a university when it comes to study startup enrollment like you mcclango trial we're not prestigious We'll run circles around University of Arizona, study startup, accrual, whatever, the IRB, like everything's faster, right? So I was always like, well, why is there, like, why are they even there? Oh, they get NIH grants and this and that. But no, it's this tech transfer offices, like, that's a large part of why they're doing it. And that played a huge role, I think, in your career. So you left Neurocrine. You went to UCSD, like, so you left like a comfortable job, right? Like comfortable, but it wasn't, you knew like you wanted more. Yeah, I took, then, a big, I took a big pay cut. <laughs> you got but, pay cut too. Yeah, wow. for sure. Yeah, yeah. But it was an investment. It was, it was a big pay cut, um, right? Because I'm going from, you know, a, a, a really squared away, um, you know, high promise uh, biotech company and and going into a university environment where you know you got to pay your 
quarterly fee for parking on campus. It's like, wait, I work here, right? <laughs> wow. Um, but it was an investment. Like sometimes you go backwards in order to go forwards. That's fine. I was just investing in myself, right? You read that kind of advice everywhere online. So, um, so I knew that Neurocrine and and most of the Neurocrine like companies out there effectively had a ceiling, right? Was what was my career trajectory? Research associate one, two, three, senior research associate you know, director of research associates or something, right? Managing a bunch of research associates. Maybe in some places, you know, you can become scientist one, scientist two, but without a PhD, but it's a long haul. It's it's difficult. And I wasn't passionate enough about doing the research to say, this is what I want to do for 20 years. This is how I want to spend my, my you know, every day of my life. So I knew that I had to make a change. I want to move over to the business side keeping biology because I love it, but moving over to the business side where I felt that I had some additional skills that I could bring to bear and be successful in a different kind of way. So it was a step backward in terms of of income. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a stab. I really think it was like from like 37 or 39,000 a year to maybe 23 or 24,000 a year. So it was not wow. a small reduction in, in income. Um, but it allowed me to, it was my break from the bench and it allowed me to learn a whole new discipline. And from a career profile, when I next went, I, I actually took a sabbatical and I, I focused on marathon running, but I, I next professionally went to get an MBA and I was able to tell a story, right? I was able to go to a business school interview at, at Cornell and say, so here's the deal. I used to work in the lab. I did it for a while. I got into a PhD program with honors. I decided to leave. I've had an epiphany. I worked at this industry job for a while. That helped me learn. I went into tech transfer. I learned a lot about tech transfer. I'm now committed to a profession in business development. That's what I wanted to do. And so that story arc was um, both informed and empowered by spending time in tech transfer. I got to obviously learn how tech transfer offices work. That has helped me because I did eventually go into business development and I would do deals with tech transfer offices in the university. So I kind of know how that machinery is lubricated and that was beneficial, but it was, it was actually more powerful and useful for me as a way of bridging from bench research into some kind of business. And uh, and so it was really valuable for me professionally. And I, and I enjoyed it. It was really interesting stuff. So you got the MBA. Now you're doing biz dev. You went back to Neurocrine? No, I, I joined a, a company. So yeah, I got, got, got the MBA. It was funny because even on the very first day, I got a little reputation. My first day of my MBA, I was working on a spreadsheet, which had a list of like 200 biotech companies in San Diego. Because I was in Ithaca, New York, and I was like, "Well, I'm going. I'm going back. When I'm done here, I'm going back to San Diego." So I was, I was the guy who, on day one of his MBA, was already working on looking for a job back in San Diego at graduation. Wow. Right. So I, you know, it were was, you born I, in San Diego or your East Coast guy? No, I just feel like this is the right okay. home yeah. for me. So, uh, so yeah. So I mean, it was very mission driven in that way. But I, I learned a lot. It was great. And then, yeah, I, I came back and I hung out a shingle and said, "Hey." I can do business development. I was looking to become a business development manager. I wanted to work for someone who is a business development vice president. I wanted to learn business development. And I was fortunate that uh, a guy named Aniv Caviar, 
who um, he, he, he's been around, he's done a lot of different things, but he was working at this small company as a vice president of business development. He hired me as a business development manager. About six weeks later, he he quit and went up to Allergan. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I, there was a vacancy and I just worked very hard. I stayed in touch with him closely. I worked very hard to fill a vacancy in this role without any guidance. You know, there was no no real mentorship day to day, but it worked out. It uh, You know, I was able to kind of fill that gap. And over a span of some years, I was able to move up from biz dev manager to biz dev director and biz dev vice president. You know, I closed some deals and, you know, earned, earned that. And, and then, you know, then I was sort of in, like, then I'm like a card carrying business development guy. Right. So but was the, this was a small biotech, right? Like yeah. A, yeah. Yeah. Was yeah. the CEO worried when this guy left and you were just kind of running that department or. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, the sneaky story behind the scenes was as, as, as new vice presidents were being interviewed, I always, I always said, I don't, I don't know about that person. I don't know. Right. I would always try and find negative things about the candidates. Right. And, and this is, yeah, I don't think I've ever told this story before. And I don't think it's, you know, all that of a crazy of a story, but you know, I wasn't, I wasn't in a hurry for someone to be replaced if I didn't feel good that they were yeah. going to be able to mentor me. And I was looking at the job and I was like, you know, damn it, I can do this. Right. There's, there's a lot of market research. I've got legal help on deals. Like I, I had worked in tech transfer. I was like, I can do this. And so I was able to basically stall and have the company not hire a vice president until I could earn that job. And yeah, it worked out. It worked out well. The CEO must have trusted you enough to take your advice or opinion. I guess. I guess a bit of a a bit of a gamble, but you, yeah. you know, as a business development guy, you don't you don't go in with a recommendation and say, uh, you know, my hunch is this will work out. You go in with data. It's a different kind of data, mm. but you say this is what I'm seeing in the landscape. You know, I've I've contact. I mean, what is it? It's it's dating, right? It's like all right. I sit with a scientist. I learn about the asset. Okay, that's fine because I had a biology degree. You know, I could learn about the asset. Then I need to apply my own ideas around marketing and positioning. And then I need to hustle. I need to get on the phone. I need to call people, go to conferences and say, hey, we have this asset. We have this library. We have this target we've identified. We think it could be a good target for drug development. Do you want to license it? Mm-hmm. It was it was dating through it was technology dating is what i did at tech transfer it was just a little bit without a net and if i had never closed any deals you know probably the ceo would have been like you know i think it's time to get someone else in here but i was fortunate that you know some deals were getting done they weren't huge but they were fine and uh, that allowed me to kind of move up in the organization a little bit unusual right when people come to me and they say hey how do i move from science to business oh okay so here's what you do you go to a company, you make sure that the boss that you're reporting to leaves within a couple of months and you take their job. <laughs> That's not career advice, right? Um, but behind that, the notion of looking for opportunities, looking for vacancies and trying to fill those vacancies, you know, because I sat next to someone who was a peer at that company and, and you know, she she elected to kind of see that vacancy as... Um, you know, it was like, oh, I don't have anyone watching me. Right. And I looked at it as, oh, there's, there's a vacancy. I want to fill that. Right. I was, I was just very ambitious in that way. And so, 
you know, that's the career advice to people is look for opportunities to take on more. Show people that you're capable of doing more if you, in fact, do want to do more. If you want to do more. Yeah. yeah. And if you do, right, that you just got And if you can't find those vacancies, ask. I had a guy, yeah. a junior guy. This is a guy. He's got a science background. He is a business development manager at my company, right? So he's not, he doesn't wear a lab coat anymore, but he was a very good immunologist back in the day. He was given an opportunity to work with the business development vice president and he has been doing great. And those two guys came to me the other day and they're like, hey, we have this idea. We are thinking we want this guy, the junior guy, to be responsible for X. And I was like, that's fantastic. I love it, right? He saw an opportunity. He's seizing it. Uh, how can I be helpful? How can I encourage and, and you know resource you to be successful in this initiative that you know I didn't see was an opportunity for your professional growth? So I, I love that. I did it and I want other people to do it. Yeah. So. Within throughout your story, you basically kind of broke down what business development actually is at one of these small <laughs> biotechs because you know, as a site, as a CRO, that's a different meaning. Biz dev means getting studies from my sites, or for the CRO, it means getting studies uh, from sponsors to manage. Like that's biz dev from biotech is very different because it's not as simple, right? It's not as linear. You have to find the scientists first, or even is there a step before that where? The leadership is telling you, hey, focus like this is like a platform we're trying to develop focus within this niche. Or are you just given freedom to like, hey, go find like mm -hmm. undervalued stuff? I believe that both should exist in most companies. So we we did an almost $700 million deal with, with Roche and Genentech for our ophthalmology program. We had finished a phase one, two, a study in 24 patients. We knew that we wanted a partner. We wanted an ophthalmology partner. We wanted a pharma partner. I mean, we ran a process. It was really clear what success looked like. And, and we, we got it, 50 million up front. You know, we're, we're really happy with that alliance. But there are other things that we have that don't have quite the same timing constraints or imperative or urgency to partner. And these are things that we go, oh, Hey, you know, take this out and just see what's out there, right? See what could happen. And and so both kinds of of initiatives I think ought to exist in companies. You should have from your executive, you know, sort of on high like here's our plan for partnering. And then there should also be the sort of opportunistic spontaneous because let's be let's be clear, I mean, a lot of business development is waiting, right? You're waiting for the buyer to get more data so that they can make a decision. You're waiting for someone to reply to a term sheet. There's a lot of waiting in business development. So you need to have multiple initiatives going. And I think some of those need to be less structured than others. Multiple sticks in the fire is what I call, how I sure. call it for us yeah. getting studies. But what about looking for the actual tech yourself, like looking for the IP? Do you, is that's biz dev also, right? But like yeah, an earlier yeah. stage. Yeah, complementary IP. So I've typically worked at companies where we had some sort of foundational technology, right? We were the innovators and inventors of stuff that we would look to license, um, or we would make more valuable, we would mature the technology and then look to license it in some way. Um, we typically did not look for assets to bring into the company. Although I have done that. I've done some acquisitions where we've brought programs into the company. I've done it through a license and I've done it through an acquisition. Um, 
And yeah, it's absolutely, you know, that that would be a very typical. A company looks at its pipeline or, or what it's doing and says, geez, we can either afford to or we want to have something else, maybe earlier stage. You know, sometimes companies are looking to package some things together. Sometimes it's complementary tech. Go find me something that'll make this better. Um, all of that, all of that gets gets done through business development. It may be, it may be created and scoped by the technical people in the organization, right? Who say, I need a solution to X. But the process of going and finding that is typically managed in my in my experience by the business development team. So at that very early stage biotechs, the the DNA of the founder is basically what's gonna drive the growth of the company because either you already have the science and the and the tech, you have an idea. So now it's just hire scientists to implement it. Or you have an idea, but you don't have the actual IP, so you need to go out and and find it at these uh, transfer offices, right? Is that like yeah, it, it that does happen where you you will call up, you will basically survey all of the leading tech transfer offices because they all have you know they're grocery stores for technology, right? They all have lists of stuff that they got. Incredible, sometimes they huh? sometimes they call you, and sometimes you call them. And you would reach out to him and he's like, so let's say you're running, you know, Stanford or Harvard's tech transfer office. Hey, Dan, it's Brian. Hey, listen, I need some kind of a editing technology for this car T project. You got anything like that over there? Oh yeah, sure. Brian, I got this guy. He's, he actually has done a couple of licenses and it's non-exclusive and I can get that for you. You want to take a look? Yeah. Show me non-confidential information. You know? So yeah, that, that kind of shopping absolutely does go on. It, it is all very sort of company specific. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, at Lineage, we don't really do any of that because we are manufacturing and we're coming up with our own IP for how we make different kinds of cells. And I don't, I don't usually go out to academic centers to try and find complementary technology. But if I want to, uh, if I want to deliver cells on some sort of a scaffold, I might not have scaffold technology, so I might need to go out to a university or a company and say, okay, how do I access a scaffold that'll work with these kinds of cells? So, it, you know, it really is sort of situational and specific to the company and what they're working on in their stage of development for how often and how aggressively they might look for new technology to come in. Do you think it's a system that works or does the system need to be optimized somehow? Like if you could, if you had a magic wand. Yeah, I've never seen a system that really can't use some <laughs> optimization. So, um, yeah, it's it's slow. Um, I think that's frustrating. I used to say uh, years ago, I don't, I I think it's changed, but I used to say that universities, tech transfer offices were getting screwed because they rewarded people. It's kind of fundamental when you look at organizational behavior. They rewarded people by how many deals that they did, not by the value of that deal. So I used to try and go get technology and close deals in in May, June, because that was the end of the academic calendar. So if I knew that, you know, Jane Smith wanted to try and get 20 deals done that year because she was going to get some little bonus, I would be in there, right? Aggressively knowing that she had a deadline that I didn't have. Mm. Um, But that, that is, you know, kind of, you know, it meant that I could get good terms for something. Right. If you, if you, and would, she doesn't care because she like, doesn't care. She just right? wants one yeah. 
deal. <laughs> yeah, and that's true. Well, that's true in you know corporate corporate too, not just corporate academia, right? Corporate corporate, be, you know, if you can figure out what someone's rewarded by, you you figure out what their leverage point is. Um, so so we would we would do that with 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 academia. Could it get improved? Yeah, I think that it. I really do think it has changed. I do think that technology transfer offices. I think they used to hire scientists like me because we understood the technology and thus we could convey it to industry. I think what happened is that tech transfer offices over you know a 10, 15 year period stopped hiring scientists so much and started hiring business people and saying, look, you don't you, you can learn the technology, but you need to be able to get fair value for this technology. And it and it stopped being a case where you could just go drop fifty or a hundred thousand dollars at a university and get like a 12 month lockup option on technology. And then after that option period, you know, you were kind of like the only one standing in line, right? Because you had a standstill. And so they weren't shopping it for a year. And so obviously, you know, who do you want to do a deal with? The person on the other side of the table who's who's been talking to you for a year and is interested in doing a deal, you don't need to shop it. And now, but now you don't have an auction. You have one buyer. And so you're just not going to get the best terms. But I, I really do think the universities in general have gotten much better at this. They've gotten smarter and and are getting much better terms but it used to be that you could get pretty good stuff pretty cheaply but it was early it was early stage always been early stage do you fear they're they're investing less in the science and more in the business and that's going to stifle innovation long term no i don't think i don't think that at all in fact i think the innovative side has gotten better i think that i think that the inventors of technology i.e the the people who generate the patents that that go into tech transfer offices have become uh, much smarter, very savvy, and that they're not just inventing stuff because it, I, I feel like this is such a gross generalization and everyone's going to like blow me up on on this. But I feel like it used to be that you would do science for science sake, try and figure out how things work. And every once in a while, you'd stumble across something interesting and that would plop into a tech transfer office and maybe it became a technology. Now I feel like there's a lot more intentional research that's done and it feels like it's a lot more about, or it's less about trying to figure out how things work and more about trying to find things that are useful. And so I think there's a far more sophisticated academic environment today, mm-hmm. understanding that through the work that you are doing to further research, educate students and all the different things that you have, publish all the different tensions and competitive forces that you have. I think that people in the backs of their minds are always like, yeah, but I want to I want to come up with something useful. And then they get that stuff in the tech transfer and then hopefully it goes off. And But it's it's more mature. And that is why I believe you hear much more sophisticated conversations around the valley of death, right? 20 years ago, tech transfer offices didn't talk so much about the valley of death because they were you know, 50 miles away from the valley start, right? Now you hear it all the time because they want to go farther. They want to make stuff more valuable. They want to do translational science and they're trying to figure out how to get across the expensive part of that. So I think there's been a tremendous advancement mm-hmm in the tech transfer office, how they view their finances and the economics of their deals, and also the kind of technology. So I don't think it's stifled. I think it's actually been enriched. So once we get through this current, I guess it's a bubble that's bursting, right, of biotech, uh, <laughs> you're bullish on the future of this industry. Like you think... Yeah, I mean the the you know the the size of the the NIH grants don't you know there's there's such a lag right between these these cycles 
of these investment cycles, which might be one, two, or three years in the worst case, you can't, you just can't pivot that quickly, right? You're, you know, as, as, a, as an academic or a research scientist, you're not like, oh, I'm working in cancer, but oh, you know what's really hot right now? Crohn's disease. I'm going to drop everything in cancer. I'm going to start a new project, Crohn's disease. Sometimes you luck into it because you happen to have an asset that might have some relevance. Sure. And you see that in academia, people write a grant and they're sending it off to the Crohn's Foundation because they think there's application. And But you can't, you can't just pivot as quickly as that most of the time. So I think really what happens is you tend to be, you tend to be a little bit more lucky that, that the, 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 the um, bull cycles kind of, you know, come into you rather than you chase them. Chasing them is really hard to do in science. I see. Right. We're going to get back to how you became CEO and all that, but <laughs> um what about repurposing drugs? What is it the 501c pathway or something like that? Uh, it might be thinking of 505b2. Oh, there you go. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm confused with all these 510ks, all this nonsense. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, like, as a research site, we do phase two through four studies. The last couple of trials, maybe it's anecdotal, maybe it's not, it's only been these kind of drugs, like repurposed drugs. Do you think that's going to get bigger going forward or? Do you think this is like my, just the moment we're in right now? Yeah. Are macro factors that are um there are macro factors that are out there that I think can be um driving the kinds of early stage, but by the time you get into the clinic. Uh, you know, again, it's years, right? So if you're repurposing, maybe you're just reformulating, you're still going to need a few years to get into the clinic with that program. So you can't really time the the cycles in that way. So I think it's probably coincidental. Um, you know, you, you can have an accelerated timeline, but you also typically don't have the same addressable market as uh, a really innovative and novel asset. So I've I've been able to successfully file an NDA for a reformulated cancer drug and you know it's fine it worked really well and it and it didn't require a lot of testing but it was never going to be a, a commercial uh it was never going to be a big commercial success because it was just an incremental change so i i think i think that's the trade-off right it's just everything has to be beholden to the laws immutable laws of risk and reward <laughs> you yeah. can't have you can't have fast cheap high quality and huge returns it just it's the math doesn't work yeah, well, there there's companies that tr do nothing but this, <laughs> which is why I ask, is this like something that's going to have growth or is it just what's happening now? Um, yeah, I might I might approach that if I if I worked in that kind of business and I thought I was going to make just any number, 15 percent, do a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Right. But if I'm going to do something innovative, I'm going to make 150 percent. Mm -hmm. You know, I can I can get farther with one. OK, good. Good answer. So. BizDev, worked your way up, CEO. When, like you always had it in your mind, right? I mean, if I'm gonna go for it, I'm gonna go CEO, or it just happened that way. Yeah, I mean, there's always this kind of a leadership thread, right? I was like freshman high school class president, you know, that kind of thing. Ah, so okay. I've always kind of felt like, oh yeah, you know, I might be able to lead. I, I, I'm a little bit of, you know, I got an ego. I like my ideas, right? Okay, so that's fine. Um. But what happened, and again, you can't you can't advise people to do this. I was working 
at a cancer company that failed and it was going out of business. I was the business development guy. So I was the closest thing to a salesperson that the company had and the company was going out of business. So I was still employed because I could sell tables and chairs and laptops. I was, I was being hired or excuse me, I was being retained to put the company to bed. The only other employee at that time was the general counsel, right? The lawyer, because he had certain uh, certain roles to play for a company that was going out of business. As it turned out, um, kind of on the side, I was working to raise capital, and I was uh, working with our board of directors or our chairman of the board, and I was able to raise $3 million to keep the lights on. So we avoided uh, implementing a plan of liquidation by three weeks. We were three weeks from going from committing to bankruptcy, wow. and we brought in three million dollars. And um, you know, we we invested that in a program. We had to do some manufacturing stuff, and you know, something that we did worked out, and um, and that allowed us to raise six million dollars. And then you know, sometime after that, we raised eleven, and then we raised nineteen, and you know, we just we started growing during that period of raising that money. I went from being the vice president of business development and and one of two employees. To I became the interim CEO. It was like, well, geez, the guy's doing the job. He's taking all the risk. I was responsible for the public filings. And, you know, I said to the to the to the chairman, I'm like, hey, I have professional risk. Like I'm signing off on the financials here, but I'm just the business development guy. Like, don't you think it's time? Right. So uh eventually I became interim CEO. Maybe a year later, I became full CEO and I I built that company up and we acquired some assets and stuff like that. So it was it was in some ways, it was similar that there was a vacancy and I stepped up. I could have just sat there, sold the laptops like I was told, you know, taken my 10% for everything that I sold and, you know, gone and look for a job. But I, as I said, I was ambitious and I was looking for opportunities and, and I saw it was a, it was a can't fail situation because if the company went bankrupt and out of business, nobody would have blamed me. It was futile. Mm -hmm. But if I could rescue it and rebuild it, there was a real opportunity there professionally to put my my stamp on some narrative of a turnaround guy or a corporate builder or something like yeah. that. So so it was looking for the opportunities to to do sensational things and and um, professionally that you know once you raise money people say oh now now I guess you're a CEO and wow. and I just tried to get better. I didn't really have a lot of like clear mentorship. I just really tried to pay attention and just get better and better over, you know, 15, 20 years of this. The crisis that turned the opportunity, do you think, was it, was it because that you believed in the science or was that like not even in the question? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be romantic? Yeah, no. <laughs> um, um, so what I did believe on the scientific side is that we should stop pursuing the failed drug I think that was the problem that the company had. I think that's what killed the company is it had a phase two failure and it continued to kind of pound away at that story. What I did differently was I abandoned that story. I said, no, that's not fixable. I don't know what's wrong. There's seven things that might've gone wrong in that study. And I don't know uh, which it were, and I can't afford to fix them all or, or test them all. So I said, we leave that. And in, in this case, we went after a 505B2. Right. I needed a 20 patient trial. I needed some, you know, small drug supply. And that was enough. Right. Quick, and we built a quick single, quick single. Yeah. Yeah. We got up over 100, maybe up to 150 million market cap from, you know, it was a single digit. Right. And um, 
you know, some, some things went well, some things went poorly, but I, I think I spent maybe 10 or 11 years in that environment, you know, kind of reinventing a couple of times with different programs. And I was given an opportunity to do that because I, I had shown some capacity for, for this business that I, that I was building credibility that if something failed, I was honest and straightforward about it. And, and when things were successful, we were rewarded for it. So, so at that point, like the science is not working, you guys really have nothing. It's just the team at that point, the asset is just the people, right? Like, yeah, it was, the, me, me, it was me and this one other guy. That's it. And then, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was just a two person company. And this was had, not public had, traded or public? it was a, it was a public company at the time. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It, I know it seems crazy, but it, you know, it, <laughs> and we had to fight not only against bankruptcy, we had to fight against uh, delisting and, you know, all these problems. And, but wow. we had some consultants, you know, there was, there were some other people around the table that were helping. They just weren't employees at the time. And it wasn't this way for a very long time. Right. I mean, the company had, you know, it had 50 some odd people It went down to two and then it built back up to 50 some odd, you know, over some, some period of some multiple years. So, um, so, you know, there were, there were resources available to, to, to do this. Um, ultimately we ended up acquiring an asset in sickle cell. We ran the largest sickle cell clinical trial that's ever been completed. And, um, and unfortunately, that was a phase three study. It gives you a sense. You go from bankruptcy to running the, the largest ever trial in a Pivotal. tough education, Pivotal, right? yeah. And it wasn't overnight. This is years, right? Reinventions and everything. That phase three was not successful. And so the, you know, the company goes back down. So there's the roller coaster goes up and down and up and down. It's really, really difficult. Wow. But, um, but you know, you got to give yourself some opportunities to be successful along the way. You don't just kind of sit there and hang out as a tiny little company. You got to, you take a few bold risks here and there. If they're well-timed and well thought through, one of them pays off, you know, that can be a, a platform to the next level. Hmm. Okay. So then you, you did that, even though it failed, I'm guessing this was the first stint at CEO there was a second yeah company. yeah we sold uh we sold that company after the failure we sold that we sold that company and then I was unemployed and I I went to you <laughs> sold it who bought it there's nothing or was oh. there some some stuff no there? there was another there was a phase two asset in, oh, okay. in heart failure with pervert, preserved ejection fraction it wasn't oh. a huge sales like it was a value of like 35 37 million uh to a company called Sevara um but then I was out of a job right um I wasn't needed and so I went and it was kind of like charitable. I found this little public company. It was an OTC, right? It was not a it was not on a major American exchange. It was an OTC traded but public company working in malaria. And um, you know, I had I had some personal runway from from my first stint as CEO and and I worked on the malaria company for a little while. I had a difference of opinion. The you know, the the owners of that company wanted to go down more of a crypto path. Um, which is not what I do. I didn't have particular interest in that. I really wanted to embrace a malaria strategy, a regulatory strategy that I identified. Um, crypto. What do you mean yeah. crypto? Like um uh, using coin, you know, coins as currency at, at a time. Cryptocurrency. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in yeah. biotech? Mm, yeah, you know, using using the using a coin as a as a currency rather than a, a revenue stream like through royalty. 
having the value of a drug asset be tied to a coin, which itself is traded separately. This wow. was at the time, all the rage. It, it, again, it wasn't, it wasn't, I had no experience in it. It wasn't any personal interest in it. I want to make medicine. I want to make the human condition better. So, um, you know, that, that, that business was, was, uh, I don't know how long I spent there, maybe a year, year and a half. And then I got a call LinkedIn, somebody found my bio on LinkedIn and said, oh, we should, let's talk to this guy. And that was for the company where I am now. That was five years ago. And yeah, I did an interview and, and took that, took that job. And, you know, things have gone very well since then. Who comes calling? Like you don't need to name names, but in those situations, Uh, it it was a junior person at a, a small recruiting firm. And um, and that recruiting firm had been hired by the chair of the executive search committee, right? So the board of directors says, we're going to look for a CEO. They hire a recruiting firm. The recruiting firm's running around. They have someone junior who, you know, is looking at LinkedIn. And they looked at LinkedIn and, you know, I had this, I, I had a profile that, that caught their eye. And they said, "Hey, you want to you want to hear about this company?" And I thought, I mean, I guess you know, I was looking at stuff. I, I had some interviews going with some other things. Nothing was really great, but there was some okay stuff. And and this one was funny because this company it looked to me to have a lot of problems, quite frankly. And I thought, well, I don't really know that much about cell therapy, but I you know I've learned a lot in my experience now. And this looks like a place that I, I could change a lot of things and. And I, I think for the better, and even if it doesn't work out for me, you know, if I spend a few years here, you know, just making changes, you know, I'll have a chance. And, and if not, I'm, I'm going to learn, I'm going to face a lot of really interesting stuff. And, you know, and what happened was uh, a lot of the changes I made, you know, the, I think, I think they were good. You know, we, we changed the, the team, we changed the focus, we changed the assets, we've, we've been changing the investor base. You know, and then we had a lot of success, and we we actually generated some clinical data that's that's quite extraordinary in one of the leading causes of blindness in this country. And and so I'm you know I'm now sitting as CEO of a company that I I thought was you know kind of a not a great company when I joined it, and now I feel like it's massively underappreciated. I think it's amazing. So um, so yeah, this is you know, but it's it's you know, in part because I had a lot of experience. I, I had, you know, I feel like I had 60 years of CEO experience in just 10 because I went through some real shit. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, that, that, that can be helpful. Those bad times, you learn a lot. What, yes, you do. What, what, what's like the first thing you do when you get to this company? Are you in the weeds looking at the science? Are you looking at where the money's going? I mean, what's like, you do, you, know that, you do, you do nothing. I, that's how I approach nothing. it. You do nothing, change nothing. You just talk to people, one on ones. Hey, uh, how you doing, Dan? Tell me about you know what do you see? You know, look, new CEO. I'm just here to learn. You know, I don't want to disrupt anything. You know, there'll be some change later. You should know there's going to be some change coming. But I, I, you know, haven't really formulated it. I, you know, it would be inappropriate of me to think that I know from the outside what's mm-hmm. going on in here. And so what I would learn is I'd learn around the power centers. I would learn about the assets that are promising. I'd learn about the skeletons in the closet. And then you develop a plan. I mean, I had some ideas from the outside, right? I, I generally could look and, and some of my hunches were validated 
But you, I think the best thing you can do as a CEO is not try and put your stamp of, of, of influence on in day one or week one or month one. I think you just figure out what the hell you just signed up for. And then, then you can, you know, bring your experience and your ideas in, into play. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. But that's a little different to be fair. That's a little different than what I told the board of directors that I was interviewing with. Mm -hmm. My message to them is I think there are 10 things that need to be changed here. And if you're not going to to back me on eight or nine of them, let's not do this. Right. And, and that was a little bit of, you know, I wanted to convey confidence. I wanted to convey that I had some ideas. I talked about what those ideas looked like. Some of them were a little unsettling. Mm. Not every board member is going to view the the ideas the same way. But what I was trying to say is if we're going to do this, if you're going to hire me, and we're going to do these these general ideas of of what you and I think are important for the company. Let's not do it halfway. You know, we got to really commit to these things. And they said yes, and they stuck by that, and and we did them. Do you go with details, or is this like high level stuff at these conversations? Um, I think each conversation would have been a little different with each board member, but I would generally say that um, you know we knew we wanted to acquire a certain company, we knew that we wanted to divest a different company. We knew that we wanted to get three, or I knew that I wanted to get three cell therapy assets together under one umbrella. I had, um, you know, some views of other assets that I thought should be starved or terminated. Um, those are a little bit more delicate, right? You know, it's you come in and you show up and you're like, hey, I think you should change the color of your house. You're like, whoa, 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 you know. Um, so some of them were explicit. And those are the big chunky ones that you focus on. And others, I thought this is going to take some time. And others were surprising. Like I did not know going in that I was going to relocate the company to San Diego, but it became clear that that was a good idea after I'd been there for a while. For the talent base or a number of different reasons. I I realized that there were a lot of personnel changes that I wanted to make and I wouldn't be able to tap into my network because the company was in the Bay Area. I didn't I didn't really know anyone in the Bay Area. And so I, you know, I couldn't really get people down here in San Diego to fly up like I was flying up every week to go to work. Yeah. So it was and and the rent, I mean, it was just way too expensive up there. Like we're in Carlsbad now. It was super affordable wow. to do what we were doing. So, you know, it was a business case. And I went in front of the board and I said, This is the case, and this is why I think we should do this. And, you know, they said, Okay. It, it was actually surprisingly easy. I thought it was going to be harder. I thought there's going to be some I don't know some historical just allegiance to the to the bay area but it there there wasn't they understood that this made sense and it did make sense it was the right thing to do interesting you you ever worry hey you know I'm I can't give these guys all my ideas they'll just take it and like not hire me or no 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 they these guys are really this 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 board, the board's evolved a little bit, but, you know, smart and successful people, um, some of them operators, some of them more investors, you know, a mix, but, yeah. you know, very bright and and almost universally successful um, individuals. And so, you know, they weren't interviewing people in order to get ideas. I think they wanted an operator. I think they wanted someone who would come in, take the ideas and then actually drive them through to completion. And that's why it's described before about you got to know the science, you got to do the business, you got to know the people, but the operations, you you got to know how to to manage an operation and actually implement these ideas in order to be efficient, great value. Maybe it's awkward. It's I don't want this to seem like 
you're stroking your ego or anything, but how many CEOs have all those four things like covered? Do you think you're unique or do you think this is like quite common that not not unique, not not unique at all. I, I think where I feel a sense of being a little bit advantaged is that my 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 scientific background is is strong, right? Like, you know, I was going to UC Santa Barbara in a PhD program in molecular cellular and developmental biology, and I'd had years of experience in labs at Scripps Research. I was working in the lab you know, as a junior at Boston College, you know, I was, I was, you know, authoring papers, right? So I pay attention to science and I've got a good scientific background and I've got in particular on the board, some folks who really understand macro in a way that I, you know, it would take me a lifetime to learn this stuff. So I can, I can, those are the sort of the two fringe ends. You got to pull it all together. So I, I don't, I, you know, there are CEOs out there much better than I am. I'm not, that's not the, that's not the the question, but I think that one of the things that allows me to feel confident in recommendations or decisions is that I really am bringing the vision on both science and the business and integrating those in what I think is the best possible way. And if you leave one of those behind, I, I think it's just harder. So that's that's where I feel a sense of of um, of, of of privilege and advantage in in my decision making but this is like this is an industry you know that you know, what is it, the numbers 90 percent of things that go into the clinic fail so yeah. you know it's really easy to fail as a ceo it's a lot harder to succeed as a ceo in this industry yeah par for other courses fail um you've been there five years right five five years next month yep next, next month, month. Mm-hmm. how would you assess how you've done so far you're setting me up um <laughs> so i i i want to recognize that ceos are largely scored by the value they create while they're making decisions so if you look at the share price over 5 years someone would say well you haven't really created anything cully and and that's how wall street keeps score Okay, that's fine. Um, you know, what I would say to that is, you know, it was, it was pretty tough because when I joined the company, a lot of people were were frustrated and they didn't want to hear from a new CEO. So the first thing that happened when I joined is the stock completely plummeted. So my basis, my starting point is kind of unfair because, uh, you know, I came in and the stock tanked, right? And I, I came into a situation where there were a lot of problems that were not well known by the investment community. So I think if someone could go on the journey with me, and and some of my employees, I hope would feel this way. I think they'd be like, "Guy is doing a really good job," but from the outside world, you know, it's hard to, hard to see it. But you know, how many cell there outside of cancer? How many cell therapy companies do you know that have a, you know, a six hundred and seventy million dollar deal with with a company like Roche and Genentech? Not too many, you know. How many how many CEOs can make it through the bad times as well as the good times? There's a lot of companies out there that have gone down 90, 95% in our space. I was told that 40 companies went out of business so far this year in biotech, small cap biotech, 40 have gone out of business. So, you know, it's, it's a really tough question because it, it, you know, what you measure depends on how you measure it. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, if I weren't doing well, they wouldn't, they wouldn't keep me around. So I, I, I think, I think I'm, I think I'm setting us up for success. I want this company to be very successful and I'm doing the best I can with limited resources and pulling everything, all this experience that we've talked about today to bring to bear and, you know, outside people as well to try to make the best possible decision and, you know, really make this a great company. Yeah. Good answer. I mean, 
I haven't followed the stock very closely, honestly, since our last interview. But judging by the comments on the last interview, they were overwhelmingly positive of you as a CEO. So try to check that out when you get a chance. <laughs> well, <laughs> when I'm you're look, feeling I, down, that's uh, the I'm community's open. there. My joke is you can't you can't win, right? Because people yeah. people will be like, oh, you know, I I think this guy does too many podcasts, and then someone else will say. Yeah, I don't think this guy is is telling the story well enough or or often enough, right? You just can't win. You have to have a right. thick skin. You have to understand that from the investor perspective, the second they hit buy, they are committed to, they think that that is the time to buy and they get very frustrated the stock doesn't go up immediately. And it is human psychology that if the stock goes down, you know, you're going to want to blame the CEO. You're not going to want to blame yourself for making a bad decision. If the stock goes up, you're going to credit yourself with making a good investment decision. You're not going to give credit to the CEO. So this is an asymmetrically terrible job because no matter what happens, we go from $1.50 to $15 and people be like, well, you should be at 25. So there's no, there's no winning, but I didn't get into it to, to be, you know, a stock guy. I got into it to develop something valuable. The stock will reflect the value I create with the team and the decisions that we make. So, you know, that's the key to success here. Make medicines that are valuable, that aren't deficient, that are going to sell a lot. People are going to look at that and be like, huh, I think you're mispriced. Let's fix that. Yeah. Fair, fair answer. Very good. Um, everybody go connect with Brian underneath. I think. When it's all said and done, I mean, CEO of a publicly traded company, on top of that in the biotech space, does not sound like fun to me. Um, but we need people like you, I guess, to push this industry forward. I mean, you've got to have people like you that are out there saying, hey, you know what? Like, at the end of the day, this is how you, this is what you said at the beginning of this interview. It's still worth it. Like, I'll still take, you know doing this over anything else because of what could happen if we do this the right way. So I think we need more leaders like you running these biotech companies, science focused. And I mean, that's your foundation is the science and then you've honed those other skills on top of it. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your story, the career advice, the lessons in this biotech space. It's a work in progress. The, we're in the middle of maybe the worst of times right now, at least short term. Uh, yeah, yeah. But hey, we'll be I, out of I, this. I very much appreciate it. I, I love what you're you're doing to help people out. I had a lot of questions and not a lot of answers when I was younger in my career. Um, and if any of this that I've talked about today is going to inspire and help someone who's going through the similar kind of journey, it worked out. I'm really happy with what I do. I love what, what I do. I think it's important work. I think it's going to be successful work. And I, I'm delighted to be able to to share some of my experiences. And, and hopefully they help people with their own journeys. Ah, thank you so much, Brian. Everybody go connect. Brian's LinkedIn is underneath this video. And if you're listening on the podcast, thanks again, Brian. You bet. Take care. Thank you.